Hey folks, welcome to another episode of the Team Builder Podcast. I am your host, Hugh Tomlin. Real quick, I want everyone to know about the online payments portal. This is our new feature. We are so excited. In fact, I found out from some folks today that if you sell your training programs and train online clients with other softwares, they sometimes hold your proceeds, your money, for up to 60 days. Um, I thought that was so messed up. So I guess I'll just take a moment to say that if you train online clients using Team Builder, you will see your money in three business days, all of it. Um, if we could do it faster, we would. We do not hold any funds. Um, so again, online payment portal, this is where you write training programs, put them up for sale, share a link, and you can sell it to anyone who's willing to buy it. Today's guest is Sean Pastuch. Um, Sean is the man. He brought a ton of knowledge on the podcast. This was not as much of a conversation as, as it was just me like getting out of his way and letting him just share some knowledge with us because um, some of the stuff he talked about, or actually most of the stuff he talked about, just doesn't come up very often in strength and conditioning circles. Um, and that's why I just sat back and, and let him have it. Um, Sean is like really, really confident, comes from the, the strong island, Long Island, and uh, tells a little bit about his backstory that I think is important uh, to understand, you know, how he kind of pursues what he does now with active life, which for me, um, it, it seems like a really ambitious business, um, but really, really needed. Uh, in short, think if you're a strength coach and an athlete tells you that they, that they are experiencing pain, um, and it's not the kind of pain that needs to send someone to the training room. Uh, that's a whole other discussion. Anyway, Sean talks about how, you know, the strength and conditioning coach is going to be elevated. We are going to professionalize um, this position, this industry, by basically allowing coaches to be equipped with the tools to address athlete and client pain, pain management. So um, this is a really good podcast we go over because um, Sean has a lot to share and you have to listen to this. If you're a strength and conditioning coach in high school or college or professional, this is just as pertinent to you as it is to the gym owner and the personal trainer, believe me. Um, so enjoy the pod. All right, Dr. Sean, welcome to the pod. Hewitt, man, I appreciate you having me on. I told you our uh, first topic would be a, uh, a surprise for you uh, when you asked me where I was. Uh, the first topic is shout out to College Park. Oh, uh, get out of here. Yeah, we're, we're, we're in Landover, Maryland. So we're just south of College Park where the, uh, for, you know, where, the, where the Washington football team plays. Yeah, formerly known as the Redskins. I mean, the Foreskins. Right. Uh, right. the, the Redskins. I'm the just, Redskins. For those of you Redskins fans out there. Yeah, I went, to, I went to University of Maryland for college. You're a proud Terp? I'm a Terp. You're a Terp? <laughs> I know you're, you're, you're experienced. You had some up and downs at, uh, at College Park. We could take some time to talk about it. Oh, you know, most of the time I was there, it was ups. I mean, when I was there, my freshman year, the basketball team won the national championship and the football team won the ACC and then got drubbed by Brock Berlin and Rex Grossman in the Orange Bowl in Florida. <laughs> but uh, I have some, yeah, man. I mean, I was not a calm college student. So I remember when Maryland beat, I believe it was Clemson at the time, which obviously would not happen now in football. That's when they clinched the ACC yeah. and I was sitting in the front row. So I called my mom and I'm like, turn on, like put the VHS into the, you know, into the, whatever it was called at the time and record sports center, just let it record sports center on loop. And she's like, why? And I was like, because I just rode the goalpost down to the ground and I know I'm going to be on. And I was. <laughs> 
those unfortunately those days are long gone. Yeah, I remember I when Maryland was a formidable team, and then Maryland I and Ralph Fiji and so on. Mm-hmm. But now it's uh, it's a basketball lacrosse school. There's no doubt about it. Well, and and even I mean the basketball has kind of gone downhill. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean we were we I didn't play for the team, but when I was there, you know, the year before I got there, Final Four. The year I was there, they won it all, and then the next year, Sweet Sixteen, and then it was just like, oh, we're not going to play sports anymore around here. We're just going to build. Yeah, yeah. So you you stepped on campus though, um, you know, playing baseball. And, uh, and then moved on from that while, while at UMD. So my anticipation when I stepped on campus was that I would make the baseball team at Maryland. I had gotten recruited at Towson. So if you're from Maryland, you're familiar with Towson. It's in Baltimore. I got recruited by Towson. I got recruited by Quinnipiac, which are my two D one looks. Maryland was not one of them, but I was like, you know what? I'm good. I'm going to walk onto this team. I'm going to make the pros as like this story that everyone tells the walk on at Maryland who was five foot nine, 135 pounds. And that didn't happen. You know, that story, that story did not come true. You, you can, if you fizzle out at Quinnipiac and Towson, you have a good experience. But when you, when you go to Maryland, there's a lot more to offer there. So you, you, you probably had the right idea. Yeah, there were, there were, um, I immediately went to fraternity life and softball. Yeah. It was great. You had a uh, basketball coach in high school who was, um, you know, part of your uh, uh, identity growing up and uh, playing sports. I'm sure he uh, probably helped install the confidence to go and try out for Maryland. You know, it's funny. There were a lot of coaches who I had growing up that helped to instill the confidence to go try it at Maryland. The two who were most influential were my parents. Uh, I remember in third grade, I didn't like something that my teacher was doing and they were like, well, go tell her. And I was afraid to go tell her I'm a third grader. I'm not going to go confront this teacher. And they went with me and they stood behind me while I told the teacher. You had to speak uh, for yourself. They made me speak for myself. Yes. And they made me respond to the teacher's response. It was, it was a great, great, great learning experience. I like to tell people that the way I learned how to swim, and this is not a joke. My mom was watching me learn how to swim with the lifeguards at day camp. In Long Island, you go to day camp. That's what you do when you're a kid. And the the instructors were like, look, he's not ready to swim. Maybe he just is too young. I was like three. She's like, no, he's in the shallow end. He can stand there. And they said, well, if we put him in the deep end, he could sink. And she's like, well, you're a lifeguard. So you would pull him out, take him to the deep end. And they took me to the deep end and I swam and I've been swimming ever since. So my parents were definitely the, the most powerful force of instilling confidence in me in my life. Now I had coaches. The coach you're talking about was my high school basketball coach named Pete Grassi. And Pete knew who was coming in the middle school, knew who was coming in the high school. And I got cut from basketball in seventh grade, eighth grade, and ninth grade. And not the way that Michael Jordan got cut where like he got cut from the varsity team because he could only dunk forward. Like, no, I got cut from JV, the seventh grade team, the eighth grade team. Cause I sucked. Cause I was small. I could only dribble with my left hand and my jump shot was, I was a legend in my own mind, but in the real world, I was very average. Kobe. Yeah. Kobe, Kobe. Yeah. Uh, but I tried out again, my sophomore year, I made the team, I became captain. And by senior year, I was captain of the varsity team, despite the fact that I was the sixth man, I didn't even start. But it was, you know, look, you put work in, you audit what you're not good at, and you improve at it, and you'll be rewarded. And I knew I was good at baseball. And when I got cut from the team at Maryland, I was actually surprised. 
And to this day, I credit getting cut from the team at Maryland with a lot of my career because the coach cut me with, with words I'll never forget. Love your fastball. Love your command. Love your slider. Love the way you hold runners on. You're just not big enough. And I was like, what? Why, who cares? Pedro Martinez, same size as me. Who cares? Uh, just not big enough, son. Not going to hack it in the ACC. Okay. I can't argue with him. Right. So true to my story, I tried out again, junior year, but I learned everything I could learn about how to get jacked in between. And I put on like 15 pounds of muscle in those two years and got cut again. Cause again, I was still not big enough, you know, ACC, I would have been pitching against for some context, Florida state, NC state, Clemson, North Carolina, Wake Forest, great Wake baseball Forest, program. Georgia Tech, yeah. I mean, it was like Mark Teixeira was yeah. coming to play in Maryland against Maryland. What are, what are you going to do? Yeah. Um, my next question was, I have it written out here, is the first time I met you, Sean, I was like, this is a very confident guy. Um, you know, you come on really strong, and uh, that's a good thing. It probably filters out a lot of folks in your life. Uh, you get introduced to because that you're you know you're in that part of uh, you know, in the leadership role. I, I was going to ask you know when did that happen? How did it happen? And you you mentioned you're from the Strong Island, so I'm sure that that <laughs> that's a big part of it. Your parents made you speak for yourself in third grade, so th- I'm sure you didn't have a defining moment that kind of made you as confident as you, as you are. Is this something that accumulates over your your life experiences? I, I think that there are what I would call pinnacle moments where there were clear jumps for me. And, and if there wasn't for the application thereof in between, I think that it just keeps going back to zero. And some of those pinnacle moments for me are, I actually can tell you one, I'll tell you two, because there are two that I think are really valuable and important besides the third grade one. Um, One of those moments was when I was running an event, I was running an event because I had lost my gym in Hurricane Sandy. I had lost my chiropractic clinic in Hurricane Sandy. I had lost my house in Hurricane Sandy. I mean, I went from like not crushing to being crushed overnight. Uh, I never wanted to have that experience again. So I started a company that I knew was, was what I would consider, you know, mother nature proof, if you will. And it was an event. It was a CrossFit style event company where I would have people come out and compete. And I remember that the confidence I had to start that event was because my business partner at the time was an elite competitive CrossFit athlete who I thought people would care enough to come out and compete with. So the event starts and it becomes very clear to everybody very quickly that he cannot hold a crowd. He's mumbling into the microphone. People are not understanding what he's saying. He's becoming overwhelmed by the moment. I like to hand hand me the mic. So he hands me the mic. I start talking and everybody's like, ah, I was like, yeah, I can. Okay. And then I go out onto the beach where I'm talking to a thousand people about what they're going to be doing that day. And the mic dies. It was too far from the receiver or whatever the someone in sound can tell you what it's called. I don't know. It was too far from the thing. So the mic dies. And I was like, oh God, I'm screwed. And I just, brought out what I would call like a coach's voice and yelled to two, to a thousand people who were 
10 feet above me on a boardwalk, a thousand people shoulder to shoulder. Can you hear me? Yep. And I just told them what was going to go down and everybody did it. I actually just ordered a charcoal black and white drawing of that moment to go on my wall here because it was so pivotal for me. It was when I recognized, like, it doesn't matter that I wasn't the elite CrossFit athlete to get the CrossFit clients. It doesn't matter that nobody knew who I was. I was able to command the room because of who I was. And that was really, really, really important. The second moment was when my wife and I had saved about $15,000 to put towards purchasing a house. And the event that I was just describing, despite the fact that it was one of the largest events in the country, was losing money. So we were saving money to buy a house. We had $15,000 stocked away. And the last event that we ran lost $26,000, of which I was on the hook for 13. And I walked into the kitchen. I'll never forget. I'm getting the chills as I'm telling you this. I walked into the kitchen and told my wife that I had lost 13 of the $15,000 that she had saved because I wasn't making any money at the time. Yeah. And it was the last time that I cried as a grown man. And by the way, it's okay for grown men to cry. I wasn't meaning to minimize that. And my wife hugged me and she's like, that's okay. You're my penny stock. Wow. I trust you. Cause I told her when we got married, I was making no money and she was making decent money. I was like, I'm your penny stock. Just stay with the investment and it will pay off. Wow. And her support in that moment for me was everything that I needed. I was just like, I'm, I can't go wrong and I have to man up and, and, and become who I need to be to support this person. Yeah. You've, you've built a business. I, I'm, I'm a, I have my own business. My wife is a big part of my story. All behind the scenes, emotional totally. support, it's tough. And yeah. um, yeah, so I see people building businesses alone and um, you know, it, it's, it's hard to do. And um, it's cool you bring that up. I wanna talk about your partner uh, people have diff different opinions on this, sometimes strong opinions. Do you recommend building a business with a partner? You know, that, that, <clears throat> no, and I don't recommend not. I recommend building a business with a vision and attracting people to the vision. And when somebody shares your vision and provides strength where you're weak, determining if making them a partner is the appropriate move is, is secondary. You know, it's first, this is my vision. Are we aligned on it? Because every time I've had a partnership break down and I've had partnerships break down that oh. I regret because of my behavior, because I wasn't prepared to be a great partner. It was always because I lacked clarity in my vision. Mm. And, and I, I most definitely lacked clarity in my sharing of my vision and how that would impact the person who was going to do the things that I was weaker in. And so for me, I've had enough partnerships to know that they can be successful and they can fail. It all comes down to alignment of vision and over-communicating. You know, you're married and you have a business partner. I believe both of those are business partners. You know, yeah. so, so the way that my marriage has been able to persevere through three kids, my wife dealing with, um, what is it called? The, the, the postpartum mood disorder. 
Yeah. You know, postpartum depression. Well, she, yeah, sure. Same thing. But but, yeah, I see what you're saying. The the way that we got through all of that was through over communication. You know, and it's still, it happens all the time. This is our vision for the family. She's retiring at the end of the year because our vision for the family is that she doesn't work to support a nanny who raises our kids, but that we have a nanny who helps us raise the kids so that we can do the things with them that we most love. And okay, well, how does that impact me? As the breadwinner now, I got to do certain things. Why did we wait until this year was over? Well, we weren't ready to do certain things. So everything is team decisions. And we, we just paid off a, a really cool story is we just paid off her student loans because it was a weight on her. her she's always kind of had debt as something that she really doesn't like to associate with. And she's had student loans. And we just decided last week, let, let's just pay off your student loans. There's no reason for you to have them. We have the money. Let's pay them off. And she was honest and said, I don't feel like I paid them off. I feel like you paid them off. And I explained to her, the only reason I'm able to pay them off is because right. you are here to support me at building what we are building together. You paid them off every bit as much as I did. One doesn't exist without the other. The outcomes are related. It's not that uh, binary. Yes. Um, that's crazy cool, by the way. Um, I love it. I, I guess, is it fair to say then, if you're talking to someone, if you don't have clarity on your vision, you're not yet ready to start a business? Or do you think that uh, piecing together your vision is part of the process? I think piecing together your vision is part of the process. But but part of your vision then to a potential partner is we're going to figure this out as we go. And it might go in a direction that makes you or me uncomfortable. And we have to be prepared that if the discomfort of doing the thing exceeds the discomfort of not pursuing the thing, then we shouldn't be partners anymore. And there should not be hard feelings about it. Yeah. So fail, in other words, a failed partnership, it doesn't mean failure as an entrepreneur, it doesn't mean failure as a business. It's just, that's just part of how the, the journey goes, the process unravels. hundred percent. I mean, my partner who I was with in the event company, I still am good friends with. Mm-hmm. We're not partners anymore. Mm-hmm. But but we we split the partnership because of his vision for it and my vision for it were different. And I felt like I would be an encumbrance on his vision. So we split and there's no hard feelings there. Yeah. He was a great partner. I was a great partner to him until it was no longer valuable to be partners anymore. Yeah. Uh, I know you're not bringing in, uh, probably not bringing in equity partners at this point in your business, but you do come across potential partnerships. And how do you evaluate partnerships with, with other organizations or people? Yeah, that's a great question. And we've had a bunch of people come offer us equity partnerships. They feel like they see something in us that they can can accelerate. And I haven't even considered any of them yet because I feel like right now we are at such an infancy stage of where we intend to be. And the last thing I want to do is deviate from where we're going because somebody with more money than me comes in and makes it easier for us to go where they believe we should go. And there's an expression that I, I, I came up with to explain to my father why I was giving up a six-figure job career that I'd started myself for the privilege of working for $4,000 a month, endless hours to pursue this active life thing three years ago. And the expression was, you know, I am happier in my pursuit of my dreams than I am 
in the unsuccessful pursuit of my dreams than I am in the successful maintenance of somebody else's. And the last thing I want to do is look at somebody else and have them say, this is where I think your company should go. And because they paid money for it, I have to take that path when it's against the way I believe. I'd rather feel right and be wrong than, than be wrong and feel wrong. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a lot of ways we could make a lot of money that I'm not willing to do because I just, I don't, I don't align with them ethically. Yeah. I want to talk about um, your CrossFit gym and clinic that got wiped out in Sandy. Um, that, I remember the first time you told that story on Rachel Balkovec's podcast. Uh, I remember listening to it. And, uh, you were telling the story with a smile on your face because you know, you're telling it in retrospect, but at the time, I'm, I'm sure it was devastating. I, I think to put the cherry on top, and this really kind of got me upset as I was listening to it, you talked about how you had hurricane insurance, but when you got down to the nitty gritty of it, it wasn't insurance. It was wind insurance. They weren't covering anything. I mean, that was upsetting for me. Um, I know in the position you're in now, it, this you look in retrospect and it's different, but at the time, I mean, what, what was your reaction like? What, what was your overall orientation like after that happened? So I'll take you back to the moment that you're talking about. Uh, something anybody should know is anytime that a natural disaster like that happens, there are processes in place to make sure that um, insurance companies have processes in place to make sure that they don't pay for things that they're not supposed to pay for. And there are people whose job it is to make sure that you get the most out of your insurance money. At the time, I had never been through something like this and I didn't know anything about what I was supposed to do. So the adjuster came and this guy shows up. He's normal, everyday white dude, shows up and says, hey, so can you show me where the water line was? And I'm like, yeah, right here, like head height. There it is. You can see it on the wall. He's like, okay, I regret to inform you that you are not covered for water damage and that's our final decision. Here's a notice. And he was fucking gone. I hope I can curse on the podcast. I apologize. Fine. He, he was gone. Cause he knows like, hold on a second. What do you mean? I, I took out a million dollars worth of hurricane insurance. How do I not have coverage for the hurricane that did this? And when I investigated it further, it was because I didn't get damaged due to wind from a hurricane. I got damaged due to floods that came as a result of a hurricane. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have flood insurance. So we didn't get covered for even one penny. Now, after learning that, what I started to see was other business owners and other people who owned homes before they would let the insurance adjuster come to their house, because there's a moratorium on how long you're allowed to file a claim for, and they would wait, they would have a private adjuster come out who essentially handles all of the insurance stuff for them. And these adjusters would say, so none of your windows broke? Like, no. Are you sure? Just because, you know, like if one of your windows broke, you would have complete coverage. Uh, by the way, is there a restroom I can use? I'm going to go somewhere that I... I'm just not in this room for a second and I want to go to the bathroom. And then people would throw chairs through their own windows. And when that adjuster would come back out, they would say, hey, so all the water came in, we think, through this major hole in the window. Got it. I'll take this up with your insurance company. 
that's what happens. I didn't do that. It's one. It's another one of those things that even had I known mm. ethically, I don't think I could have pulled it off. Right. But yeah, that was that was a really bad day, man. But a valuable one in my history. Yeah, it's. I, I hear. Look, I haven't had anything that catastrophic happen to me. I wonder sometimes if I have like the grit to get through something like that because you know you got right back up and started doing the event based. Uh, business that, that you mentioned had its own pains as well. Well, well so I didn't see a choice, mm. you know, and, and part of what's in me is when other people lack confidence and, and are grasping for some kind of certainty, it's in me to, to become that so that they have something that's solid for them to hold on to. And none of it's fabricated. You know, none of it is fake. None of it's that fake it to you make it kind of stuff. It's not that. It's just that when something really heavy and emotional hits me, I'm able to say, that's a heavy emotion. I'm going to sit with it for a second. And then I'm going to respect it and do something instead of just looking for someone else to do something. And Hurricane Sandy hit four days after we got noticed that we won a lawsuit with our next door neighbor for noise that cost me $120,000 to defend myself when I didn't even make $120,000 that year. We didn't have that. Mm -hmm. So it was like beat down, beat down, beat down, beat down, beat down. But I look at my wife and she's crying. I look at my business partner and she's crying. I look at her husband and he's holding his head in his hands and he's my business partner. And I can tell that he's distraught. And I'm like, it doesn't do us any good to have another person who doesn't know what to do right now. And I might take imperfect action with imperfect information, but it'll be action. And that's it. Got to pick and paint colors. Yeah. And look, you, you, you move past event marketing and then is that, um, you had some chiropractic schooling underneath your belt. Had you graduated at that point or, or? Oh yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the, the timeline for me was 2004, became a personal trainer at university of Maryland at the CMC. Right. right? That's, that's the, the community, whatever it's the gym. The rec center. Yeah. Yeah. Um, CRC, CRC. Yeah. Yeah. Then it was become a personal trainer at a terrible gym and learn all about the business of personal training. Yeah. I want to circle back to that, but keep going. And then it was get a personal training job at a really good gym at Equinox and learn the business of personal training, the business of fitness, and then become disenfranchised with it because there was no respect from the medical community and clients who had issues, you know, doctors would tell me just work around them for your clients. That wasn't cool. That wasn't what I was looking for. So I became a chiropractor. And in 2009, I graduated chiropractic school right in the middle of my class. No interest in being top of the class. No, wouldn't have cared if I was the bottom, but I ended up in the middle and I opened my own CrossFit gym when I realized the chiropractic wasn't the thing. I'm like, all right, well, I want to be able to help people who are interested in moving and helping themselves. So I'm going to open a gym, bring my partner in who already owns one of these gyms, who's a good friend of mine from childhood. And I'll open a clinic immediately next door and I'll just run the clinic. I had the experience of learning how my father and my uncle did it. And my friend has the experience of running his own gym. Everything here will be great. You do the back of the napkin math, 34 members will break even. This is sick. Let's go. And then nothing happens the way that you think it's going to. 
Wait, if Sandy didn't happen, that that business was successful or not successful? Depends on your definition of success. I mean, we had, let's call it 140, 150 members or so at the time. They were paying an average of like 160 bucks a month for a CrossFit gym in 2012. That's pretty good. We were full. Our space was full. It was a 1,200 square foot gym. So it was time for us to get the second location. And fortunately for us, we had the second location when Sandy hit. And fortunately for us, it was not open yet. And we had not done construction in it yet. So when we went to file for flood insurance at the new location, they said, hey, did you get flooded in Sandy? We said, no, we didn't. Because technically we didn't. Yeah. And you know, we got an inexpensive rate. The demo crew came in, cleaned everything up. They were going to do it anyway. So that business was successful from a strictly monetary perspective. It was not successful when it comes to how long I had to work day in and day out to support it and how integral I was and my partner was in servicing the business. You know, if, if, as soon as you go to hire in a business like that, there was no money left over for the ownership. Yeah. Yeah. Understood. Um, World Gym, Equinox, these were your first places of employment after college, correct? That's correct. World Gym in Huntington, New York, and then Equinox in Great Neck. World Gym, a lesson in what not to do. Equinox, you say a lesson in what to do, but it came with its nuances. So World Gym was a lesson in everything that you need to know for context around the fitness industry. Uh Uh-huh. And what I mean by that is there were some people in there who were really chasing excellence as it pertains to phys- you know, th- their, their physique, mm-hmm. you know, professional bodybuilders. Uh, the owner of the gym was great at getting a professional bodybuilder to be a little bit better at being a professional bodybuilder. But then he would have sex with random women in his office that was double-sided glass so that he could see when his wife and his kid would come and put his clothes on to come out. To me, that was totally unethical and it was everything I didn't want to be. I learned how to take apart and put back together a selectorized machine. I learned how to clean windows because, you know, I was doing it with towels. No, you do it with newspapers because they don't deliver residue and the black ink actually helps the mirror be even more shiny. I learned how to situate the equipment in such a way that it didn't look like a curves, but it functioned like a curves for people. You know, you move from this bench to this pec deck to this hammer strength, and you just move through the gym and it didn't, it didn't seem intentional to the user, but it was extremely intentional from a business perspective. Yeah. I learned how to sell personal training sessions to everybody which I always felt like was unethical, but it was what my boss wanted me to do. I sold a bag of steroids unknowingly from behind the front desk. You know, I I did all of that stuff. And I understood the economics of a gym through that, the economics of paying a trainer through that. I hated it. And I thought of Equinox as this place that was like like the Valhalla for personal trainers, which it's not, but it's another false peak. And I went and interviewed at an Equinox. My aunt, Elise, got me the interview because she was a member there. And I sat down with my soon-to-be personal training manager, Joshua Harrison. And 
I remember Joshua asking me two questions vividly. One of the questions was, can you describe a movement in which I go through shoulder flexion and elbow extension at the same time? And I got it wrong. I was like, I think I told him like a lat pull down because it was elbow flex. It was the opposite. Yeah. I just got the joint Lat actions press. backwards. Yeah. And it was a shoulder press, like a dumbbell press. Fine. Forgave me there. He asked me, take me through how you would get a client on the floor. And I took him through the way I would get a client on the floor. And he was like, that's the best answer anybody's ever given me in that chair. And it was instead of trying to sell to everybody, because I've done that. My first engagement with people would be to make friends just to be valuable to them in the gym. My second engagement would be to, you know, double down and, and prove to them that I was there for their best interests. And if they needed my help a third time, I would try to transition them to a sales conversation. And he was like, that's the best answer anyone's ever given me. And I didn't understand at the time why. I was just like, oh, good job. Pat myself on the back. Like, you're definitely getting this job, bro. And I did get the job. And I got full-time at Equinox in five weeks. And I don't know if anyone listening to this knows what that means, but effectively, that is five months faster than the average Equinox trainer who ever gets there. Most don't. And it was just because I was willing to do the front end work of getting to know people on the floor and making sure I could help them before I were, you know, sign them up as a client. Mm-hmm. And when I was at Equinox, I learned about first impressions. I learned about brand. Got it. We tuck our shirts in here. This is why. I'm not saying you have to tuck your shirt in, but I understood why they did it. I learned about like, I learned about the value of joint actions. I learned about the value of continuing education and the value of sales and how they don't happen accidentally. And I learned about the value of hard work. You know, for anyone out there as a personal trainer, you get floor shifts and it's part of how you get paid. And most personal trainers dread the floor shifts because they have to go do the annoying stuff. My boss actually had me sign a document that said I understood that what I was doing was of my own volition and was not slave labor because I told him I was going to work floor shifts for free if I was allowed to until I was full-time because I didn't want to get clients at 5.30 a.m. or at nine o'clock at night. So I needed to be there during the times of day that I wanted to have clients. And I just grinded it out until I got full-time. I learned a lot from that. This is like a year, year and a half between World Gym and Equinox. World Gym was a six-month experience and then I couldn't do it anymore. Equinox was one year and then I couldn't do it anymore and I went to chiropractic school. Yeah, a year and a half. In the grand scheme of things, not a long time, but from an opportunity cost, you know, that's some time. So my question is, if someone wants to be a really good coach, a really good trainer, own their own gym one day, should should they do that? Do they... Do they stand to benefit from doing some time in a global gym and just observing it and seeing how it works? I think it depends on how you learn. You know, it's, it's a, I like to say that the long way is the shortcut. I hate that because I like doing things fast, but mm-hmm. the long way is the shortcut. And the only way that I would say that you can, the only way I would say that you should avoid that kind of a path is if you're the kind of person who can work with a coach who, when they say, do this, you just say, okay. And then ask them afterwards, why? 
instead of questioning it and assuming that you know better and assuming that you don't need their advice or that, you know, there's a different way to do it. Just, okay, do it, assume it's right, and then ask why. My experience working at Equinox allows me now to help trainers in a group setting at CrossFit gyms at um, any boutique group setting interval training facility, hit studios, or in a commercial gym. I can teach a trainer how to go from zero to five or $10,000 a month with very little effort and very little doubt. Very little because of what I did there. And I can speak to the owner of that gym and make sure that it's worth it to them to have the trainer do that so that it doesn't just become a resentful relationship because I was a shadow to my manager. So while a year and a half feels like not that long, I squeezed all of the juice out of that year and a half. I mean, all of it. Got it. It, um, it definitely seems like, again, a year and a half, but not everyone wants to do that, especially if you have an opportunity that seems like more prestigious in a way, but you gained a lot of context. It sounds like from world gym too. world gym. It, at first for me, it sounded like a, like I said, a lesson of what not to do, but you got a lot more from it than that. Um, I like to look, I like to look at all of my experiences and try to learn from them in a way that I can accelerate positively. You know, Sandy has its positives. The lawsuit my next neighbor had its positives. Everything has its positives. You just need to find them. Yeah. That's why we're doing this podcast. Someone yeah, needs man. to hear that. It's, it's, it's hard. Like it's, I want to speak to the person who's listening to this right now. Who's like easy for you to say. Yeah. You know, the person right now who's listening to that, that's like easy for you to say, I want to speak to them right now. It doesn't get easier when you have more money. The difference is I don't go to bed at night anymore worrying about if I'm going to make enough more money for my selfish life. I go to bed at night now worrying about if I'm going to be able to pay 30 people who work for me enough money to feed their kids and stay in their homes. And the burden of that is so much greater for me personally. Maybe no, maybe it wouldn't be for you, but for me, it's so much greater than the burden of I'll just fucking have a salad tomorrow. It's not that big of a deal. I'll go to the I'll go to the grocery store and buy a four dollar salad. That'll be lunch. I'll work from five a.m. to nine thirty. No big deal. That's me. I can do that to myself. But when it's other people's lives on the line, it doesn't get easier. Decisions magnify, and. It's not easy for me to say. It's it's hard for me to say because you still go through this stuff. I still go through this stuff all the time. Failures all the time. I just forget them oftentimes. I remember the the value I learned and I forget about the feeling of the failure because it doesn't do me any good. I think it's fair to say um, here in this podcast that you and I share someone who introduced us. That's kind of why we're here. Mm -hmm. uh, a mentorship program. And, um, you know, we're running businesses, they're, they're, they're doing okay, relatively speaking. Okay, why do we need a, a mentor? Who's this person? It's for the same reasons you just mentioned. Um, the, the, the stakes get higher, the problems become bigger. 
And when I started hiring people here at Team Builder, I, I was working longer hours and it ought to be the opposite, right? It, it, you were told that you need to learn how to scale, scale efficiently. You hire, you delegate, you, you find people to do these processes. It's just not how it works. Um, so I'm, I'm with you on that. I, uh, in some ways I look back when it was just my partner and I grinding it out and it, it was almost easier in many ways back then than it is now today because the burden grows and uh, the burden has a toll. Uh, it has a toll on you internally speaking. And the other thing for people to know about that, I mean, we can we can say Ken Andruko is the the you know level five mentors is the person who introduced us, and I think he does a phenomenal job. And to one of my beliefs is that everybody wants to be led. You might not want to be led in every aspect of your life, but I believe everybody wants to be led in some aspect of their life. And if you're listening to this, you're probably a health fitness professional. The people who you are potentially afraid to lead in the way that you believe they need to be led are yearning for it. They badly want to be able to just delegate that responsibility in their life to you, no matter how much they're paying for it right now. And it's your job to be able to give them enough peace that you can lead them in a way that they don't have to think about that part of their life. They just have to show up and do. You know, when I have something big going on in my life, especially as it pertains to the business, I reach out to Ken and I take solace and I take peace in knowing like, okay, I have somebody who understands what I'm going through and can make a much more dispassionate decision about this than I can because they're not in the moment. Yeah. That's why I'll always have a coach. Yeah. This is a new lesson for me. Before Ken came around for me, I didn't really have anyone. Um, you would resort to the, the same kind of friends and family network, so to speak, but um, you're just swimming around your own fishbowl and uh, there's a big ocean out there, you know? Well, there's nothing wrong with swimming around the fishbowl first. And it, like for anybody who's, who's thinking about seeking mentorship, you know, start in your fishbowl, but observe it. Don't just take all of it as truth, observe it and ask yourself, what experiences did that person have in their life that leads them to believe that that's the best advice? Then ask if you want their experience. Okay, well then do it or don't do it, depending on the answer to that. And then there's nothing wrong with watching YouTube or following people on Instagram or listening to podcasts before you spend a bunch of money on somebody. Just make sure you're taking action. And Find somebody else to hold you accountable while you're taking that action. And then if you feel like the, the pull for you is to really take shortcuts and to, to jump faster, hire somebody to help you do that appropriately. Yeah. Hiring is, that's its own podcast, so we don't have to get into it, but that's, <laughs> it's the double-edged sword. Uh, I want to pivot into uh, active life. Um, you know, just so you know, and the majority of my listeners and our clients here at Team Builder will be college, high school, professional strength and conditioning coaches. I'm mm -hmm. sure a good amount know about active life, but just to be thorough, I was hoping you could give us the quick rundown on what you do, the mission. Uh, we can get into how you started it and so on, but why don't you go ahead and, and introduce that? Yeah, thank you. The, the, the problem that we look to solve at active life is a simple one. It's a single word, right? It's, it's confusion. And what I mean by that is no strength and conditioning coach lacks access to the information 
to better help their clients. It's the codification. Is that a word? It's the codifying of that information that is lacking. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the, I trust that resource and I will follow that resource that I believe has been lacking. And that is the void that we fill. Our mission is to humanize the doctor. And the way that we do that is by helping the doctor speak the language of the coach, helping the coach speak the language of the doctor so they can have human conversation. Professionalizing the coach so that the strength and conditioning coach, the personal trainer, the, the, the fitness professional can become what I believe is the healthcare provider of the future. Sitting at the big boys table. You know, if you're, if you ever, if you have kids and you have big holidays, or if you were a kid once, you might remember the kids' table and the grown up table. I think too many coaches know what it's like to feel like we're sitting at the kids' table. I've been the doctor, I've been the coach. What the doctors are most missing is the value of a consistent professional coach. And what the coach is most missing is the education to bridge that gap so that we can empower the individual who ends up being our client. And so to put it short, humanize the doctor, professionalize the coach, empower the individual. The way that we do that is through providing the most succinct, simple, not easy, simple, effective, repeatable education for fitness and healthcare professionals in the world so that we can eliminate the gap between them, clarify the scopes between them, and build a team instead of adversarial relationships. And I like to believe that we're the best in the world at doing it and that any team we work with, any coaching staff we work with, immediately understands how to best leverage the skills of other people on their team. I think it's fair to say that we know way too many coaches who feel like they don't have a seat at the table today. Mm -hmm. There are way too many coaches who feel like they're on the bottom of the totem pole in the athletic department. Mm -hmm. This is speaking to college and high school. I can't tell countless conversations and, and, and countless, you know, insinuations from talking to coaches that this is like the state of things right now today. Um, conversations sometimes take place in roundtables that I participate in, association, clinic, so on, about how to speak a different language that garners them more respect, more authority within the uh, organizations where they work. I'm sure that plays a part, but for me, that never seemed comprehensive. It seemed like there's a lot more to it than just that. So can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, and I agree with you, Hewitt. And I think that part of the problem is most of the people who I've been educated by who have helped me to become a better coach. It almost felt as though it was a favor for them to educate me. Like, oh, thank you so much for coming down from the top of your mountain to bestow on me a little bit of your fairy dust. And then go back up to the top of your mountain and with everybody else up there kind of laugh about how little we're able to do. That was always how it felt for me. And maybe that's just my experience and it's not a reality, but it's how it felt. And it was confirmed for me by the amount of money that I was able to make as a fitness professional compared to a doctor. Even though as a doctor, I was solving a lot of the problems that really fitness professionals should be able to solve. 
you know, Joe walks in, his back only hurts when he's picking up over 300 pounds. Joe, your insurance isn't going to cover this. I got to charge you cash. No problem. I'm happy to pay it. The coach should be able to solve that. In fact, it should be the coach that they go to for that. And we at Active Life have been fortunate to create relationships with really progressive doctors, orthopedists, physical therapists, physiatrists, who happily refer us their patients when they no longer need to be patients. And I believe that every coach in the world should have that experience. And they're actually not lacking that much information. Like, I, I'm confident that we could get coaches where they need to be in three to four months. Because it doesn't come down to, and, and don't get me wrong, that's not the end of their journey, right? But that's the, that's the entry to the table. You're now sitting at the table. No one's passing you the steak, but you're sitting at the table now. And that happens because the doctor just wants to know that they're not going to send a patient to you and you're going to make it worse. You need to know what the outcome that the doctor wants is. You need to know the language that the doctor is looking for. You need to be able to speak it at a level that is deep enough that when they ask a question that is not your pitch, you understand how to answer it. I'll give you a simple example. I once had a client who about a year earlier had decided it would be a good idea to hold the kiddie pool down on the back of a pickup truck by sitting in it. And that's a bad idea. The pickup truck hit a bump, Kitty pool caught air. He flew out of the back of the pickup truck at 40 miles an hour and broke his fall with the back of his head. College football player at the time, 250 pounds of stud. Well, he had to relearn how to walk. He had to relearn how to talk. He had to relearn how to breathe on his own. All of these things he had to relearn how to do. Finally, He's done with all of those things and physical therapy and ortho, you know, occupational therapy and his doctors are like, you can go into the world, Alex, you're good. But this is a former defensive end at a small college who was 250 pounds, six foot one stud, who now weighs 175 pounds of, I'm not really sure how to run anymore. He came to me for help because we had a mutual family friend. And the first thing I did was I said, look, I wanna help you, but I don't understand what happened to you. And I don't understand what the risks are, should I do the wrong thing? So before I agree to take you on as a client, I need you to give me the contact information and the intro to all of the doctors who worked with you. And the first doctor I spoke to um, was, I believe, his neurologist. I don't remember if it was neurology or cardiology, but it, it's irrelevant to the story. And the guy's like, I don't want Alex working out. It's okay. Well, can we talk about why? You know, I understand that there's probably something in his workout that, that concerns you. He's like, look, here's the deal. You don't understand. If Alex's blood pressure spikes from a workout, he could die. Whoa, that's fucking scary. So, okay, can we talk about what, what you mean by spikes? Because if the fire alarm goes off in his house, his blood pressure might spike. And I think it's better if he gets exposed to that in a controlled environment first. He's like, look, 
Alex can gradually increase his blood pressure, but if it goes up from normal 120 over 80 to something of high intensity exercise quickly, it could kill him. I said, so if I understand you correctly, you're describing things like the Valsalva maneuver. You're describing things like grinding movements that will immediately create constriction on blood pressures that will increase his blood pressure. You're talking about me putting Alex upside down. These are the things that you're concerned about him doing. Is that true? It's like, yeah. How did you know that? So it's my job to know that. What I want to do is make sure that I'm training Alex well below his threshold until we increase his threshold. And the doctor and I created a relationship where I spoke with him on a weekly basis about what I was doing with Alex, what I was planning to do with Alex, and what his concerns were. And then altering it. And a year later, Alex was back to running the 40 in under five seconds. Which for those of you out there who are football fans, you know, he's not going to the NFL like that. But for a guy who was walking with swing gate, yeah. you know, a year earlier, that's a big deal. Yeah. So talking to doctors, that phrase alone for coaches, they're like, whoa, usually they get a doctor's note. That's, that's the authoritative piece of paper. It might be frustrating. They might not agree with it, but that's like, that's the end. They, they don't even, I think for the most part, these are folks that I deal with talking to the doctor, having a dialogue. They're probably not prepared for that. They probably don't think it's really possible for the most part. Um, but this is what you do at active life as you encourage these conversations, but you also educate coaches on how to have these conversations. Absolutely. And, and an example of, of how we do something like that, that frustrates me, but it, but needs to be done is I've worked with professional baseball players who couldn't get what they were looking for from the team or from the strength coach or from the athletic training department, because there are rules. There are rules. We will not allow this person to lift overhead, for example, is mm -hmm. a rule. I can break that rule. I'm not on the team, but I don't. I don't break that rule because I don't want to risk the trust of the team when they find out that that person is working with me. So instead of breaking that rule, I will let the team know that one of your players has contacted me. With the player's permission, by the way, never without. Hmm. One of your players has contacted me and asked for help. In my evaluation, I found the following. One of the things that I would like to do when appropriate is begin to load overhead movements for the following reason. This is what success would look like in the overhead lifting. These are the red flags that we would be looking for that could make it where we would pivot and stop doing it. What I would like to do is reach out to you before we take the first step in that direction, notify you about it, keep you abreast to what's going on. Is that amenable? There's some resistance usually, and ultimately we get to a yes. Because it's, it's not, hey, we're going to press overhead. It's we're going to do a high pull which is similar to an overhead press. It's a shorter range of motion. It's a pull instead of a press. There's going to be less AC joint imbrication, but there's still going to be some. And we're going to just start to groove movements and ranges of motion that, that prove the athlete is capable of moving through them. 
I believe that there's value to a professional athlete doing things like a power clean. I know teams don't want it because they believe that the risk isn't worth the diminished reward. I respect that. I'm not going to teach your athlete how to do a power clean. I'm not an Olympic lifting coach. I'm not world-class at doing it. I can believe that there might be a better way without telling the athlete, I think that there might be a better way and usurping authority. And in the back of my mind, have a little bit of frustration that I can own and not have to share with anybody else because I know just enough in that department to be dangerous. And I understand that. Let's talk about like pain management. It seems like this is a touchy subject, again, for strength coaches. I've heard you say that strength coaches are, are well-equipped and well-prepared to address pain management, but that oftentimes gets handed over to someone else, taken off their plate. In athletic settings, I see it all the time with the um, sports medicine professionals, but there's a gray area. It always exists. People are going to exit the sports medicine, the athletic training room. They're going to be handed back to, to strength coaches. Strength coaches have to deal with this gray area where athletes are not 100%, and they're above 80%. They're somewhere kind of in between. So I, I want to talk about like your experience working with um, athletic programs, professional staffs, whatever. What is the relationship like between strength coaches and athletic trainers uh, for the most part? Is, is there tension there? Have you seen, seen them where they work well together? And then like, how, what's your take on that, uh, that existing structure? Cause that structure existed before you and I started working with those people. Yeah. I think that there are places where it works really well. And frankly, I want to be transparent. I, I haven't necessarily been in that model with them. You mm -hmm. know, like I, I, one of my friends, Dana Santis and her husband, work under Eric Cressy for the New York Yankees. And Eric Cressy was brought in to help make sure that athletes can hurt less often and that they can recover from it. I think that that's great. I think that that's really, really progressive and really smart and I have nothing to do with it. What I think is important is that every coach who's listening to this knows athletes hide injuries. Athletes keep things to themselves because they don't want to go to the doctor and be told you can't. They don't want to be told you can't because the moment that they're told you can't or you shouldn't, they understand that they become a less valuable asset to the team that they're on and a less valuable asset to the team that they want to notice them. If you're in college and you want to go pro, the last thing you want to do is have a pro scout come down and say, how often was this guy injured? Yeah, a little bit, you know, here and there, but he always bounces back. No, I was never hurt. I think that there needs to be a construct around pain that is universal that people are able to understand and communicate about that is not taboo. An athlete should be able to say it hurts without that being a call for go to the training room. Let's, let's put you in a body cast. I was that athlete, by the way, being hurt, hurt or injured. It's like, I, I, I don't know, man, that, why is that my decision? This is me as a collegiate <laughs> athlete, right? right? That, that was a question you got, especially in college football. Are you hurt or injured? Right. And uh, you're like, I, I don't know, man, I just want it to go away. And, and I want to work on it in a way that doesn't cost me reps or, mm -hmm. or cost me time with the team. Because, you know, if you play in a competitive program, that's the difference between starting or not starting. It's, it's, it, it kind of puts a lot on the athlete. It's, go ahead. It's, it's, it's also the difference between getting looks in practice. Yes, that's right. You know, uh, listen, you go to the training room. We're going to let this guy run routes. Yeah. No, I can run routes. It just is uncomfortable. Right. Let me run routes. So, what I would say is this, there, there is no perfect way to do this. And I am 
by no means dogmatic about the way that I'm about to describe. I'm sure that there's a better way and I'm happy to try to find it. This is the best way that I know so far. We have four rules to pain and four terms to injury. I'd like to take you through them all if that's okay, if we have the time. Sure, we have time. So there are four terms I think everybody should know. The first term is insult. Insult is the subconscious intake of stimulus. What that means is right now your body feels fine. You're listening to this, but eventually you're going to shift from your left ass cheek to your right ass cheek. And when that happens, insult just became conscious. You became less comfortable than you were a second ago. It's now irritation. So insult is the subconscious intake of stimulus. Irritation is the conscious intake of stimulus. Irritation becomes pain when it gets tied to a negative emotional response. What I mean by that is if you're like, oh man, I really don't like sitting on my left side. I'm going to sit on my right side. Someone would say, why is that? You'd say, because my left side hurts, not because my left side is irritated. That's when irritation becomes pain. Pain is a negative emotional response that is amplified by uncertainty. What that means is you played college football. If I walked over there right now and shin kicked you, you'd be like, you're such a dick, but you wouldn't lay on the ground holding your shin saying, I, I, you might've broke my shin. I can't walk. My mom. Right. But somebody who didn't play college football or high school football or any sports growing up, who's never experienced getting kicked in the shin might go straight to the urgent care. Did they have a more severe injury? No, they had more uncertainty around the injury. Mm. And so their pain was higher. Now, when coaches say, are you hurt or are you injured? What they're asking is, are you in pain or are you injured? The difference is injury is the decision that I can no longer do something. So let's go through them one more time. Insult subconscious intake of stimulus. You're all feeling it all the time. You don't even notice. Irritation, that stimulus becomes conscious. Pain, the negative emotional response tied to irritation and amplified by uncertainty. Injury, the decision that I can no longer do a task. Anybody who's ever worked out or played a sport knows that irritation is necessary to drive adaptation. So we need to be clear about what we're experiencing. Now we have our rules for pain. How do we make as objective of a decision as possible with only subjective input? We have four rules. Rule number one is the amount of pain that you're experiencing a five out of 10 or less. If the answer to that is yes, let's monitor it. Keep doing what you're doing. Is that pain getting better or staying the same from rep to rep? If the answer to either of those is yes, keep doing it. If it's no, we're going to stop. We're going to take a look at that. Do you have a resolution of the pain as soon as you stop doing the thing? Meaning, let's say that you got low back pain when you squat, but as soon as you stop squatting, the pain goes away and the pain was less than a five out of 10, and it wasn't getting worse from rep to rep. Yeah, great, keep squatting. It doesn't appear as though you're doing damage. Do you have a focal onset of pain 24 to 48 hours after the bout? If the answer to that is no, awesome. So three yeses and a no. 
right? Yes, it's less than five out of 10. Yes, it's getting better or staying the same rep to rep. Yes, it goes away as soon as I stop. No, I don't have more pain in that area that is focal 24 to 48 hours after. We're not doing damage then. Let's stop babying it. However, what interventions can we do to reduce that pain even further? And that's where a comprehensive evaluation that I believe is inside of the scope and the sweet spot of a strength coach is absolutely imperative and wildly valuable. This system, um, did you create this system? I mean, like, who? what is this based off of, if you don't mind? He would, nobody creates anything anymore. I, uh, so I got the, I got the insult, irritation, pain, and injury from a colleague of mine who owns a place called the Stay Active Clinic in Asheville, North Carolina. He's done. He's an extensive researcher. He's one of those guys named Corey Duval, very smart guy, uh, on the you know on the verge of like eccentric, where I'm like, look, you're not going to monetize this. You're not going to run with this. Is it cool if I do? Yes. Great. I'm going to take that and make it something. And then the guidelines for pain uh, came from experience. They came from reading things like Dr. Sarno's book. It came from learning from Dr. Bill Brady at Integrative Diagnosis. It came from taking active release techniques with Mike Leahy. It came from speaking to great strength conditioning coaches like Rachel Balkovec. It came from listening and observing and taking notes and auditing and iterating and reiterating and looking to be wrong instead of looking for information that confirms what I want to be the truth. Yeah. That's where it all came from. I want to like ask better and smarter questions about this. I'm just having like flashbacks of like being in my collegiate weight room where like pain was taboo. Like you mentioned, um, it was something that you, you really shouldn't bring up to a strength coach or sports coach in your weight room. Um, not just because like you didn't want the coach to know that you were hurt or put through the, 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 the funnel, right. Are you hurt or injured, but you didn't really have the confidence that, a that the strength coach was going to basically know what to do with you. You know what I mean? You didn't want to get sent to the training room, but you, you weren't sure you're going to get your problem fixed anyway. Well, and, um, and, and he would, anyone who's been in a strength room in that, in that paradigm of doctor to athletic training staff, to physical therapy, to uh, strength coach to intern understands that the reason for that is the pressure is put upon the coach, the strength, the lab, the strength coach is there to progress your skills and, and your strength and your performance. They're also there to make sure you don't get hurt. So the moment that you say you are hurt, yeah. if they don't report it up the chain there, it's their ass. Yeah. So it's, there's a lot of cover your ass in that, in that system. And it's because it's built on scarcity and it's built on fear. Yeah. Instead of creating a dialogue that more clearly represents what's actually going on for the athlete so that the communication amongst the staff can be clear and effective. And then we can build KPIs around it and get athletes where they need to go. Yeah. Almost like a broken system in a way, if you think about it. All of our systems are broken. They're just waiting to be improved upon. That's right. Um, we're running out of time here. I, um, I wanted to bring this up. I, um, I don't know if you know J.L. Holdsworth. He's with RPR. Is he someone that you're familiar with? Then Holdsworth sounds really familiar. I don't know him personally. Yeah, former competitive powerlifter, um, RPR reflexive performance reset. Um, anyway, oh, yes, 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 yes. I've heard of that. Then when you say that, I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. So he's a friend of mine. I've sat in on a lot of their clinics. Um, he, he has this piece that he says where he says, you know, this is gen pop, by the way. We're switching to like gen pop more so than athlete populations. 
it says, you know, pain is emotional for people. Um, when people sustain a, a, a pain or an injury for long enough, it becomes part of their identity. Yeah. And, and, and you know, getting them to, to really have want to address it and fix it. I didn't really kind of understand that because I'm not a practitioner like, like he is in a way, but I figured you would be able to have some sort of experience in, in breaking that down for me. What does it mean for someone to, to identify by an injury, to identify by pain? I love talking about this. This is one of my favorite things to talk about. So you're lighting me awesome. up right now. And, and just so you know, I don't know if you have a time frame on the podcast, but you just got me going right there. Yeah, just whenever you leave, we'll end it. <laughs> I'm not leaving. So I love the sound of my own voice. Come on, who does <laughs> So I actually only love it when I'm speaking, not when I'm listening to myself. But anyway, um, it is 100% a part of their identity. And what I mean by that is this. Let's, let's take pain out of it, an injury out of it for a second, and bring something else in as a stand-in. Let's pretend that you were not able to read. You, you just can't read. You're in your 30s, you're in your 40s, and, and you still can't read. You go to dinner with your friends and they're like, hey, Hewitt, here's the menu. Figure out what you want. And you look at it and you're like, darn it. I still can't read. You're so fucking stupid, Hewitt. I hate this. Your friends wouldn't just be like, oh, wow. Yeah, like, you know, you are stupid, Hewitt. They'd be like, whoa, what was that? I just, I, I can't read. They would say, well, Hewitt, why don't you learn how to read? That's something that people do all the time. You, you're never too old to learn how to read. It used to be in the commercials. But the football player who has a knee injury from college stands up from the table, has a little jerk, and limps a few steps and then walks. And their friend says, hey, what was that? And you're like, oh, this is my old football injury, you know? They're like, oh, okay. It's accepted. So what happens is it becomes a part of who we are. That's Hewitt. He's got that knee thing. He played college football and yeah. he banged himself up a bit. And for you, it's like, well, who am I if I don't have this knee thing? And you believe I've tried all of these things to help it. When I was in college, I was working with the best doctors, the best strength coaches. Have you ever met anybody, by the way, who made an appointment to go see a surgeon and says, yeah, just an average surgeon. Yeah. No, everybody's like, oh, he's it's one the, of the top 10. He's what she's yeah. one of the top 10. It's, yeah. It's the Mets guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Great. Great. Have you watched the Mets? You're fucked. So, <laughs> but, but, but so if the Mets doctors are out there listening to this, I apologize. I'm local. I want to do business. It won't be, believe me. <laughs> but, but, you know, it, it becomes a part of who you are and you start to make decisions about what you can, can't want to, and don't want to do in your life. Do you want to go do that ropes course with your wife? Ah, uh, that knee thing. I'm not sure I should do that. Do you want to go to the beach? How long is the walk on the sand? Do you want to learn how to surf? I don't know if that's a good idea. You know, my knee's probably going to bother me. And you start to become this person who does things and doesn't do things based off of what you expect the outcome of those things to be based on your previous experiences. But those were your previous experiences. One of my favorite Michael Jordan quotes is, why would I get nervous about a shot I haven't even taken yet? So to me, it's, how can we as strength and conditioning coaches do a better job of giving people the confidence that the story that they've been telling themselves doesn't have to be the story that they continue to tell themselves. And I believe that it comes from that the answer to it lies in providing them with the smallest glimmer of certainty because 
I have a five-year-old daughter and recently we were talking about bravery. And I think that it takes an athlete or any individual, GPP, general population, they need to be brave to spend money, to spend time, to spend effort, frankly, to spend hope on trusting a coach to be able to guide them through something that they don't believe currently is possible. They need to be brave. And bravery, the reason I brought my five-year-old is I explained to her that bravery is not to be devoid of fear. I didn't say that to her, but she's five. Bravery is being afraid and doing it anyway. And the only way that you're afraid of something and you do it anyway is if you believe that there's a possibility it's going to work. And people need coaches to help them believe it's possible that it's going to work. That is the first job of a coach. That's how we change people's self-narratives. Do you think that there's a degree of, of being brave that a coach needs to address? 100%. Because a lot of coaches were inspired to get into coaching by caring for people, but they also like to, to make people stronger and faster, perform better, and you know they're passionate about that. And then you know, bringing people back from injury – is like the other side of the coin, you know, it's, it's like playing doctor in a way and they, they might shy away from it. And well, they, they also could shy away from doing the thing that they know they need to do to get the person to be a better athlete because they're afraid of the way that the person's going to interpret what they're asking them to do. Hmm. And, and that for me is one of my favorite things to do with coaches is teach them sales because whether they are selling personal training sessions for money or, trying to convince the all pro tight end that he should do this a little bit differently. It's a sale. And for a lot of people making sales is a guessing game. They assume they can just keep being persistent and eventually that person's going to say yes. And when that person doesn't say yes, after a while, they assume this person just doesn't want to do it. I assume this person doesn't believe it can be done that way. And then I ask myself, why not? What are they missing? What do I understand that they don't? How do I communic communicate it to them in a way that they will? Are they lacking belief that I know what I'm talking about? Then how do I give them more confidence in me? Are they, and maybe it doesn't happen right away, but how do I do it intentionally? Are they lacking belief that the process works? How do I put enough evidence in front of them to see it that they can't refute it? Do they lack belief that the organization has their best intentions? Well, how do we do a better job as an organization of making sure the athletes believe that we do? Do they lack the belief that they can actually execute on all of these things? Well, how do we make them so certain that the other three things are legit, that their ability is irrelevant? We're going to pull you through. That's a sale. You're just selling an idea instead of a financial solution. Yeah, it is a sale. It's, um, you're always selling yourself whether you realize it or not. Every interaction is some sort of competition of ideas. I mean, that that's kind of a cynical way of looking at it, but the, in a way that is uh, within a department, within a workplace. I mean, that's that's how it is sometimes, you could say. Totally. Well, end it there, man. We did over an hour. That doesn't usually happen on this podcast, but I'm gracious for your time. Thank you for doing that. My pleasure. Can I give you one more short thing for everybody? Yes, absolutely. Early in the show, you mentioned that you recognized early on in a podcast I was on somewhere else that I had a lot of confidence. 
and and that, that can help bring people in or push people away at the same time. And I wanted to share with you something that occurred to me as we were talking is the number one reason why I have that confidence. It's because I'm excited when I'm wrong. And so instead of shielding myself from the potential of being wrong, I am wide open to it because finding out I was wrong somewhere and becoming better at it makes me better. And so I would like anybody who's listening to this to understand that the, the things that you are insecure about in your own skills and your own delivery of your own product that you believe are your best kept secrets are the things that everybody around you most clearly knows. And you need to get in front of your own story and just be happy when you're wrong so you can get better. I think that message is probably so relevant beyond the industry that we work in. That's something mm -hmm. that just applies to a lot of folks. In a day, where, day and age where a lot of information is available and people are kind of just forming their identities and in some ways they have a choice to entrench and um, you get your ass kicked enough, <laughs> you, know, you stop entrenching and you just say, look, this is, this is kind of how life works. Um, but it's, you need a reminder. I, I can have good days and good weeks where I feel good and confident and, and uh, no, I can't be wrong. You know, like I'm on cloud nine and uh, you need a little something or someone smarter than you, someone to come by and, and uh, you know, quote unquote, take you down a peg, but it comes and goes. I'm sure you have people in your life that, that do that for you and you seek it out. That's good. Mm -hmm. All right, man. Uh, Active Life, I am going to provide all the uh, ways for people to find out about that on my mediums. No problems there. Um, do you have a preferred way for people to keep up with you? Do you have a preferred uh, uh, outlet or channel? I don't talk much about strength and conditioning on my personal Instagram account, but I do talk about the things that I think can make you more valuable at being a strength and conditioning coach on my personal Instagram, which is at Dr. Sean Pastuch. D-R-S-E-A-N-P-A-S-T-U-C-H. You can share that in your show notes as well. My, my biggest belief is that if you want to be successful in business, you have to work five times harder on your personal, on your personal growth. And then the business will follow. Love it. Your podcast of your own. Should people follow? Of course. Of course they should. The Active Life Podcast. It's it's more relevant to uh, the personal trainer than it is to the the, the strength conditioning coach who might be listening to this, but they can, they can pull some nuggets from it for sure. Yeah. We have a lot of those and with a lot of coaches who, you know, whether they know it or not, they're personal trainers on the side. Sure. Yeah. Sean, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Happy to come on anytime, Hewitt. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Team Builder Podcast. If you have an idea for a guest or a topic that you would like us to discuss on our format, go ahead and reach out to me. My email is hewitt at teambuilder.com. Thanks again for listening.